Welcome to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair, William Thackeray's deliciously satirical take on a money-mad society set against the backdrop of the Napoleonic Wars. We're delighted you're back for another novel in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. If this is your first time with us, you can find all the other novels in our series plus new episodes at classicalfm.ca or through your favorite podcast app. Now, let's turn to Marilyn as she reads William Thackeray's Vanity Fair. Chapter 60 Returns to the Genteel World Good fortune now begins to smile upon Amelia. We are glad to introduce her into a polite circle, not so grand as that in which Mrs. Becky has appeared, but still genteel and fashionable. Joss's new house was in the comfortable Anglo-Indian district around Moira Place. Who does not know those respectable homes of the retired Indian aristocracy and the quarter which Mr. Wenham calls the Black Hole? Joss's position was not grand enough for a house in Moira Place itself, but he rented a comfortable house of a second-rate order in Gillespie Street. It was a modest establishment. The butler was also Joss's valet. Emmy had a maid, grown on Sir William Dobbin's estate, a good girl, whose kindness and humility disarmed Mrs. Osborne, who was terrified at the idea of having a servant to wait upon her. But this maid was very useful in skillfully tending old Mr. Sedley, who kept to his own part of the house. Many people came to see Mrs. Osborne. Lady Dobbin and her daughters were delighted at her change of fortune and visited her. Miss Osborne from Russell Square came in her grand chariot. Joss was reported to be immensely rich, and old Osborne had no objection to Georgie inheriting his uncle's property as well as his own. "'Damn it! I'll see him in Parliament before I die,' he said. "'You may visit his mother, Miss O, though I won't.' Emmy was very glad to see Miss Osborne, and so be brought nearer to Georgie. That young fellow was allowed to visit his mother more frequently. He dined once or twice a week in Gillespie Street, and bullied the servants and his relations there just as he did in Russell Square.' He was always respectful to Major Dobbin, however. He was a clever lad and afraid of the Major. George could not help admiring his simplicity, his good humor, his learning quietly imparted, and his general love of truth and justice. He had met no such man before, and he hung fondly by Dobbin's side, delighting to walk in the parks with him. William told George about his father about India and Waterloo, about everything but himself. When George was more than usually pert and conceited, the Major made jokes at him, which Mrs. Osborne thought very cruel. One day, the Major took him to the play, and the boy declined to go into the pit because it was vulgar. So the Major took him to the boxes, left him there, and went down himself to the pit. He had not been seated there very long before he felt a little arm thrust under his. George had seen the absurdity of his ways and come down. Dobbin loved the boy, as he did everything that belonged to Amelia. Her eyes looked more kindly on Dobbin than they had ever done. She blushed, she thought, after looking at him so. 
Georgie never tired of praising the Major to his mother. I like him, Mama, because he knows such lots of things, and he ain't like old Veal, who's always bragging and using such long words. But Dob reads Latin like English and French and that, and he tells me stories about my papa, and never about himself, though I heard Colonel Buckler say that he was one of the bravest officers in the army and had distinguished himself ever so much. Grandpapa was quite surprised and said, "'That fella? Well, I didn't think he could say boo to a goose, but he could, couldn't he, Mama?' Emmy laughed. She thought it very likely. However, there was no great love between George and his Uncle Joseph. George had got a way of blowing out his cheeks and putting his hands on his waistcoat's pockets and saying, God bless my soul, you don't say so, so exactly like Joss that the servants would explode if the lad did it at dinner. Even Dobbin would shoot out a sudden peal of laughter. The little scapegrace did not mimic his uncle to his face, only because of Dobbin's rebukes and Amelia's entreaties. Joss, haunted by a dim consciousness that the lad thought him an ass, was doubly pompous and dignified in his presence. When Georgie was expected in Gillespie Street, Mr. Joss usually found that he had an engagement at his club. Joseph Sedley, then, led a life of dignified idleness. He became a member of the Oriental Club, where he spent his mornings in the company of his brother Indians, where he dined, or whence he brought home men to dine. Amelia had to receive and entertain these gentlemen and their ladies. She heard all about the imprudent doings of the Bombay House and the Calcutta House. She learnt that the wife of Brown of the Ahmed Nugger Irregulars had been sitting up with young Swanky of the Bodyguard, and that Trotter was appointed collector at Umarapura. This talk took place at the grand dinners, always with the same conversation, the same silver dishes, and the same saddles of mutton. Politics set in a short time after dessert, when the ladies retired upstairs and talked about their complaints and their children. Before long, Emmy was driving about regularly in a carriage, calling upon Lady Bluider, Lady Huff, and other distinguished wives. The carriage came to Gillespie Street every day. At stated hours, Emmy and the carriage went to Joss's club, or drove her father round Regent's Park. She was voted, by Joss's female society, rather a pleasing young person. Not much in her, but pleasing. The men, as usual, liked her artless kindness and simple refined manner. The gallant young Indian dandies at home on leave, tearing around in cabs, frequenting theatres, living at West End hotels, nevertheless admired Mrs. Osborne and liked to pay her morning visits. Swanky of the bodyguard, the greatest buck in the Indian army, was one day discovered by Major Dobbin, tete-a-tete -tete with Amelia, describing the sport of pig-sticking to her. And Swanky spoke afterwards of a damned officer that was always hanging about the house, a long, thin, queer-looking, oldish fellow, with a dry humour, though. Had the Major been more vain, he would have been jealous of Swanky. But Dobbin was of too simple and generous a nature to have any doubts about Amelia. He was glad that people should admire her. Ever since her womanhood had she not been undervalued. 
it pleased him to see how her spirits gently rose with her prosperity. After Joss went to court, as a loyal subject of his sovereign, he became such a tremendous Tory and pillar of the state that he wanted Amelia to go to a royal drawing-room, too. He somehow had worked himself up to believe that he was involved in the maintenance of the public welfare, and that the sovereign could not be happy unless Joss Sedley and his family rallied round him at St. James' Palace. Emmy laughed. "'Shall I wear the family diamonds, Joss?' she said. "'I wish you would let me buy you some,' thought the Major. "'I should like to see any that were too good for you.'" Chapter 61 In Which Two Lights Are Put Out There came a day when the round of decorous pleasures in Mr. Joss Sedley's house was interrupted. The period of mourning for Mrs. Sedley's death was only just ended, and Joss had scarcely time to cast off his black and appear in his splendid waistcoats when it became evident that another event was at hand, and that old Mr. Sedley was about to go and seek his wife in the dark land where she had preceded him. Joss and his acquaintances dined and drank their claret in silence, whilst the sands of life were running out in the old man's glass upstairs. The velvet-footed butler brought them their wine, and they played cards after dinner, at which Major Dobbin would sometimes take a hand, and Mrs. Osborne would occasionally descend when her patient above was settled for the night and had fallen into a troubled slumber. The old man clung to his daughter during the sickness. He would take his broths and medicines from scarcely any other hand. To tend him became almost the sole business of her life. Her bed was placed by his bedroom door, and she was alive at the slightest noise from his couch, though to do him justice, he lay awake many an hour without stirring, unwilling to awaken his kind nurse. He loved his daughter more now, perhaps, than ever he had done since her childhood. She walks into the room as silently as a sunbeam, Dobbin thought, as he saw her passing in and out from her father's room, a cheerful sweetness lighting up her face as she moved to and fro, graceful and noiseless. A secret feud of some years' standing was thus healed, touched by her love and goodness. The old man forgot all his grief against her, and wrongs which he and his wife had often debated, how she had only thought of the child, and how absurdly she took on when Georgie was removed from her. One night, when she stole into his room, she found him awake. Oh, Emmy, I've been thinking we were very unkind and unjust to you, he said, and put out his cold and feeble hand to her. She knelt down and prayed by his bedside. When our turn comes, friend, may we have such company in our prayers. Perhaps his life may have passed before him. His early hopeful struggles, his manly successes, his downfall, and his present helplessness. A life of defeat and disappointment. And the end here. That must be a strange feeling when a day comes and we say, Tomorrow, success or failure won't matter, and the sun will rise, and all the myriads of mankind will go to their work or pleasure as usual, but I shall be out of the turmoil. 
So there came one sunrise when all the world got up and set about its works and pleasures with the exception of old John Sedley, who was not to fight fortune any more, but to take up a quiet residence in the churchyard besides his wife. Major Dobbin, Joss, and Georgie followed his remains to the grave. Afterwards, Joss returned to the Star and Garter at Richmond. He did not care to remain in the house. But Emmy stayed, and did her duty as usual. She was solemn rather than sorrowful. She prayed that her own end might be as calm and painless, and thought with trust of the words which he had heard from her father during his illness, showing his faith and his future hope. Better to end defeated, after all. Suppose you are particularly rich, and say on that last day, I am very rich, I am well known, I have lived all my life in the best society, and, thank heaven, come of a most respectable family. I don't owe any man a shilling. I leave my daughters with ten thousand pounds apiece. I bequeath my house and belongings with a handsome jointure to my widow, and my landed property, money, and my cellar of well-selected wine to my son. I leave twenty pound a year to my valet, and I defy any man to say anything against my character. Or suppose, on the other hand, you say, I am a poor, blighted, disappointed fellow. I was not endowed with brains or good fortune, and confess that I have committed a hundred mistakes. I have forgotten my duty many a time. I can't pay what I owe. On my last bed I lie utterly helpless and humble, and I pray forgiveness, and throw myself at the feet of the divine mercy. Which of these two speeches, thank you, would be the best oration for your own funeral. Old Sedley made the latter, and in that humble frame of mind, life and vanity sank away from under him. You'll see, said old Osborne to George, what comes of merit and industry in that. Look at your poor grandfather Sedley and his failure. And yet he was a better man than I was twenty years ago, a better man by ten thousand pounds. When old Osborne first heard from his friend Colonel Buckler how distinguished an officer Major Dobbin was, he showed a great deal of scornful incredulity and expressed his surprise that such a feller as he should possess either brains or reputation. But he heard of the Major's fame from others, too. And when his name appeared in the lists of one or two grand parties of the nobility, this had a great effect upon the old aristocrat of Russell Square. The major's position as guardian to Georgie meant that meetings between the two gentlemen were inevitable. At one of these, old Osborne, looking into the major's accounts with his ward and the boy's mother, got a hint which staggered him very much, and at once pained and pleased him that it was William who had largely supplied the fund upon which the poor widow and the child had subsisted. When pressed upon the point, Dobbin blushed and stammered, and finally confessed. "'The marriage was very much my doing,' he said. "'I thought my poor friend had gone so far that retreat from his engagement would have been dishonour to him and death to Mrs. Osborne.' 
When she was widowed, I could do no less than give what money I could spare to maintain her. Major D., Mr. Osborne said, looking hard at him and turning red, too. You did me a great injury, but you are an honest feller. There's my hand, sir. And the pair shook hands, with great confusion on Major Dobbin's part. He strove to soften the old man and reconcile him towards his son's memory. He was such a noble fellow, he said, that all of us loved him and would have done anything for him. I, as a young man, was more pleased to be seen in his company than in that of the commander-in-chief. I never saw his equal for pluck and daring. And Dobbin told the old father as many stories as he could remember about the gallantry and achievements of his son. And Georgie is so like him, the major added. He's so like him that it makes me tremble sometimes, the grandfather said. On one or two evenings, the Major came to dine with Mr. Osborne, and as the two sat together after dinner, all their talk was about the departed hero. The father boasted about him, glorifying himself in recounting his son's deeds, but his mood was at any rate more charitable than previously, and the Major was pleased at these signs of goodwill. On the next day at breakfast, when Miss Osborne ventured to make some slighting remark about the Major, her father interrupted her. You'd have been glad enough to get him for yourself, Miss O. But them grapes are sour. Ha! <laughs> oh, that Major William is a fine feller. That he is, Grandpapa, said Georgie approvingly, and going up to the old gentleman, he kissed him. He told the story at night to his mother, who fully agreed. Indeed he is, she said. Your dear father always said so. He is one of the best and most upright of men. Dobbin happened to drop in very soon after this conversation, and the young scapegrace told him, I say, Dob, there's such an uncommon nice girl wants to marry you. She's plenty of ten, and she scolds the servants from morning till night. <laughs> well, who is it? asked Dobbin. It's Aunt O, the boy answered. Grandpapa said so. I say, Dob, how prime it would be to have you for my uncle. It was pretty clear that old Osborne's mind was changing. He asked George about his uncle Joseph sometimes and laughed at the boy's imitation of the way in which Jaw said, oh, God bless my soul, and gobbled his soup. Then he said, it's not respectful, sir, to be imitating your relations. Miss O, when you go out driving today, leave my card for Mr. Joseph Sedley, do you hear? The card was exchanged, and Joss and the Major were asked to dinner, the most splendid and stupid dinner that ever Mr. Osborne gave. Every inch of the family plate was exhibited, and the best company were invited. Mr. Sedley took Miss O. into dinner, and she was very gracious to him, whereas she hardly spoke to the Major. Joss said solemnly it was the best turtle soup he had ever tasted in his life, and asked Mr. Osborne where he got his Madeira. "'It is some of Sedley's wine,' whispered the butler to his master. "'I've had it a long time and paid a good figure for it, too,' Mr. Osborne said aloud to his guest." More than once, 
he asked the Major about Mrs. George Osborne, a theme on which the Major was very eloquent. He told Mr. Osborne of her sufferings, of her passionate attachment to her husband, whose memory she worshipped still, of the tender and dutiful manner in which she had supported her parents and given up her boy. "'You don't know what she endured, sir,' said Honest Dobbin, with a tremor in his voice, "'and I hope you will be reconciled to her. "'If she took your son away from you, she gave her son to you, "'and however much you loved your George, depend on it, she loved hers ten times more. "'By God, you are a good fellow, sir,' Mr. Osborne said." It had never struck him that the widow would feel any pain at parting from the boy. A reconciliation was announced, and Amelia's heart began to beat at the notion of meeting George's father. However, the meeting was destined never to take place. Old Sedley's lingering illness intervened. That catastrophe may have worked upon Mr. Osborne. He was much shaken of late, and aged— he had sent for his lawyers and probably changed his will. One day, when he should have come down to breakfast, his servant went into his dressing-room and found him lying in a fit. Miss Osborne was told the doctors were sent for. Georgie stayed away from school. Osborne partially regained awareness, but never could speak again, although he tried, and in four days he died. The doctors went down, and the undertaker's men went up the stairs, and all the shutters were closed. Bullock rushed from the city in a hurry. How much money had he left to that boy? Not half, surely, surely share and share alike between the three. Oh, it was an agitating moment. What was it that poor old man had tried in vain to say? I hope it was that he wanted to see Amelia and be reconciled before he left the world, for his will showed that the hatred had gone out of his heart. They found in his dressing-gown pocket the letter which George had written him from Waterloo. When the will was opened, it was seen that half the property was left to young George and the remainder between the two sisters. Mr. Bullock was to continue the affairs of the commercial house as he thought fit— an annuity of five hundred pounds was left to the widow of my beloved son, George Osborne, who was to resume the guardianship of the boy. Major William Dobbin was appointed executor, as out of his kindness and with his own private funds he maintained my grandson and my son's widow when they were otherwise without means of support. I hereby thank him heartily and beseech him to accept a sum sufficient to purchase his commission as a lieutenant-colonel or to be disposed of in any way he may think fit. When Amelia heard that her father-in-law was reconciled to her, her heart melted and she was grateful. But when she heard how Georgie was restored to her and knew how it was William's bounty that had supported her in poverty, then she sank on her knees and prayed for blessings on that constant and kind heart. And gratitude was all that she had to pay back for such admirable devotion and benefits. Only gratitude—
If she thought of any other return, the image of George stood up out of the grave and said, You are mine, and mine only, now and forever. William knew her feelings. <laughs> Had he not passed his whole life in divining them? When Mr. Osborne's will became public, it was edifying to remark how Mrs. George Osborne rose in people's estimation. Joss's servants, who used to question her humble orders, never thought of it now. The cook forgot to sneer at her shabby gowns. The others no longer grumbled at the sound of her bell. The coachman drove her with alacrity. Joss's friends suddenly became interested about her, and cards of condolence multiplied on her whole table. Joss himself, who had looked on her as a good-natured, harmless pauper, to whom it was his duty to give food and shelter, paid her and her rich little son the greatest respect. He was anxious that she should have amusement after her troubles, poor dear girl, and began to ask how she would like to spend the day. As guardian to Georgie, Amelia begged Miss Osborne to live in the Russell Square house as long as she chose, but that lady, with thanks, declared that she could never remain in that melancholy place, and departed in mourning to Cheltenham. Amelia also declined to occupy the gloomy old mansion. The house was dismantled. The rich furniture and mirrors were packed away. The carpets were rolled up. The small library was stowed into two wine chests, and the whole paraphernalia rolled away in several enormous vans to the Pantechnion, where they were to lie until Georgie was twenty-one. One day, Emmy and George went to visit the deserted mansion, which she had not entered since she was a girl. They went into the great blank rooms, the walls of which bore the marks where pictures had hung. Then they went up the great stone staircases into the upper apartments, and then higher still into George's own room, the boy clinging by her side. She knew that it had been his father's room as well as his own, and went to one of the windows. She looked out over the trees of Russell Square to the old house in which she herself was born, and where she had passed so many happy days. They all came back to her. The pleasant holidays, the kind faces, the joyful pastimes, and the long trials that had since cast her down. She thought of these and of the man who had been her constant protector, her sole benefactor, and generous friend. She was very silent as they drove back to Richmond, where they had taken a temporary house, where the smiling lawyers used to come bustling over to see her, and where, of course, there was a room, too, for Major Dobbin, who rode over frequently to do business on behalf of his little ward. Georgie was removed from Mr. Veal's on an unlimited holiday. Mrs. Frederick Bullock, although robbed of half of the sum which she had expected from her father, nevertheless showed her charitableness by driving to Amelia's house in her gilded chariot with her flaccid children. Amelia was reading a book in the garden. Joss was in an arbor, and the Major was playing leapfrog with Georgie, who jumped over him and bounded into the little bullocks with immense black bows in their hats, who accompanied their mourning mamma. He is just the age for Rosa, the fond mother thought, 
and glanced towards that dear child, an unwholesome little miss of seven years of age. "'Rosa, kiss your dear cousin,' Mrs. Bullock said. "'Don't you know me, George? I am your aunt.' "'I know you,' George said. "'But I don't like kissing, please.' And he retreated. "'Take me to your dear mamma, you droll child,' Mrs. Frederick said. Those ladies thus met after an absence of fifteen years. During Emmy's poverty, the other had never thought of coming to see her, but now that she was prosperous, her sister-in-law came as a matter of course. So did many more. Our old friend, Miss Swartz, with her husband, came over from Hampton Court, as impetuously fond of Amelia as ever. Miss Swartz would have liked her always if she had seen her. But in London one has not the time to go and seek one's friends. If they drop out of the rank, they disappear, and we march on without them. Who is ever missed in Vanity Fair? In a word, Emmy soon found herself in the centre of a very genteel circle of ladies, most related to a peer, some very well informed and frequenting the royal institution, others severe and evangelical. Emmy, it must be owned, found herself entirely at a loss in the midst of their talk. She sat dumb amongst the ladies in the grand drawing-room, looking out upon velvet lawns and glistening hothouses. "'She seems good-natured, but insipid,' said Mrs. Rowdy. "'She is dreadfully ignorant,' said Mrs. Glowry, with a sad shake of the head. "'She is my brother's widow, my dear friends.' "'Mrs. Frederick replied, "'and we should give her every instruction on entering into the world.' "'That poor dear Mrs. Bullock,' said Rowdy, as they drove away, "'she is always scheming. "'The way in which she coaxes that boy and makes him sit by that blear-eyed little Rosa is perfectly ridiculous.' "'But this sort of society was too cruelly genteel for Emmy.' and all jumped for joy when a foreign tour was proposed. Thanks for listening to Marilyn Lightstone Reads Vanity Fair. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nimer. This is the latest book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Other selections include Showboat, Anne of Green Gables, The Age of Innocence, Pride and Prejudice, and The Woman in White. You can also help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in your preferred podcast store. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.